Before the Sermon on the Mount, we read in Matthew 4, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And then later, also in chapter 4, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. There are four important words here which we should not take independently of each other. Kingdom, gospel, repent, believe. I would suggest to you that our understanding of these words, these concepts, is either lacking or oftentimes misses the point entirely. Some historical background that we looked at last week as we look at these words taken together. The Roman Empire uh, controlled the Mediterranean basin during the time of Jesus. But it wasn't always that way. In 44 BC, Julius Caesar was assassinated, which was followed by a decade of civil war. You have different factions vying for power. And finally, in 33 BC, uh, Octavian comes out on top. And two years later, he sends out a letter. He had taken the name Augustus Caesar. He took the title Divi Filius, that is divine son or the son of a god. And in this letter that he sent out, this is what he said. The beginning of the word of gospel that hath come to all men through the coming of God to rescue the world, repent and believe. The four words are there. Kingdom, gospel, repent, believe. He made a public announcement that something had happened. Good news, glad tidings, gospel. The empire had arrived. There's a new emperor. A kingdom has come. Repent means if you chose the wrong side, you need to get on the right side with Augustus Caesar. You need to accept me. You need to believe in me as the emperor or suffer the consequences. And think for a moment The Roman Empire had made an announcement of good news, of gospel, of glad tidings. Augustus Caesar was Caesar. He died in 14 AD. So for half of Jesus' life, uh, Augustus Caesar was, in fact, in control. Um, In that light, consider the words of Jesus. And here is from Mark chapter 1. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the gospel. Well, then there's of necessity going to be a clash uh, between that which Caesar has established and that which Jesus says is near, that is the kingdom of God. Jesus used the word kingdom, I would say, in a very political way, not as a religious term. We think of it primarily as a religious term, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. But a new kingdom is here. It's a new way of life. And the Sermon on the Mount tells us about that kingdom. It begins with the Beatitudes. Jesus tells us what that kingdom and the people in that kingdom will be like, how they are supposed to live. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then it continues, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, and on it goes. People would say, well, that doesn't sound like any kingdom I've ever heard of, which is precisely the point. In the Sermon on the Mount, we have a presentation of the kingdom of heaven. Okay, if I'm 
in the kingdom, how am I supposed to think? You know, uh, Augustus Caesar said, repent and believe. If you back the wrong party, if you back Mark Anthony, um, yeah, you need to change. And when Jesus proclaims the kingdom, it is a call for a change. Repent and believe. You, in fact, need to embrace the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. So if we're part of this kingdom, what is to be our world view? It's a word that we'll be using a lot, Lord willing, in the next few weeks. It's actually a term that was coined in 1790 by Immanuel Kant. Um, I don't do German but Germans are notorious for having compound words, putting things together. And toward the end of the book, um, he coined a new word, Weltanschauung. Welt is the word in German for world, and Anschauung is perception. I think if we could go back in time and interview Mr. Kant, we would say, so tell us about this Weltanschauung. I, I think he would say it's not that important. But after his book came out, it was a critique of judgment. That seemed to be the thing that people really focused on. And in the 19th century and then the 20th century, it became a word. But its definition, how it was used, changed over time. Um, wherever I lecture... Uh, three universities here in the States, in the Philippines and Brunei, this is always the first lecture that I give on worldview because, in fact, my students are going to be studying about Southeast Asia and they're not Southeast Asian. We're going to be talking about people in the past. How do we understand them? Well, we need to know how they thought. We need to know what their worldview is. But they also need to know what their worldview is. Otherwise, we just sort of talk past each other. So what is a worldview? The definition that I give, I find helpful, is it is a set of assumptions that one holds about the basic makeup of the world. Because it is a set of assumptions, it's not something you try to prove. Um, all of us have a worldview, by the way. To be human is to have a worldview. You have a way that you look at the world. Um, Richard Weaver said, all of us live in and with a worldview because it's in sync with our precognitive metaphysical dream of the world. Uh, James K. Smith says it is a gut-level orientation. It's something you, can't, you don't try to prove or try to explain. It's simply something that is there. He goes on to say, while you can articulate aspects of it in propositional form, it cannot be reduced to that. You can't simply reduce it to these are the facts. This is what I think. Charles Taylor called it a social imaginary. So worldview... If we are part of the kingdom, what is a kingdom worldview? Well, that is what I'm hoping, the Lord willing, in the next few weeks to consider. Since it is a set of assumptions or presuppositions, which seems to be the word that Christians use more often, um, you don't go about trying to prove them. You simply assume them to be true. This is the way that it is. Um, Jonathan Haidt, in his book, The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion, says that the first principle for him is intuition comes first, strategic reasoning second. In other words, you have these assumptions that's intuitive. You, you don't really, maybe you don't even think them through that carefully. You probably should. 
But then from there, then you have strategic reasoning. Let me give you an example of worldview thinking. Statements in physics about physical laws assume the constancy of the universe. Scientists also assume the reliability of the scientific method and the trustworthiness of their senses in gathering, analyzing, and analyzing data. Chemists depend on the constant relationship between the elements they use. They trust that they will not get sulfur by mixing nitrates and oxygen. But if you were to ask them, prove this, I, no, that's simply something we assume to be true, that the universe is reliable, that things, if you do something, it will happen usually the same way time after time. Um, in this series, for the most part, I will not try to prove something. What I want to do is to say, this is what we think. These are the things that we assume, the presuppositions. And from that, we then go on and we live our lives as people, as citizens of the kingdom. I may, from time to time, contrast kingdom worldview with other worldviews not to disprove those other worldviews, but because oftentimes they creep into our own thinking. I'm convinced that many Christians, in fact, don't have a kingdom worldview. Their basic assumptions, their presuppositions, are not biblical. Um, I hope on some level to correct that, if that is the problem. Just a side note, some of what I say in this series may sound familiar. I hope so, because the kingdom worldview is the backdrop to my teaching and my preaching. I, I, I hope that it is rooted in a kingdom worldview. So everyone has a worldview, but most people haven't thought about it. And so what I do with my students is I give them 10 questions that if they ask, or if they answer these questions, they will begin to have sort of a basic understanding of how they view the world. For most, the most part, they've never thought about these things. This is the first time that they have. But if they answer these questions, they'll have sort of a skeleton, a framework, uh, the basic ideas behind their worldview. The 10 questions are, what is first cause? What is the nature of reality? What is a human being? What happens after death? What is the basis of morality? What is the nature of evil? What is the nature of knowing? What is the place of culture? What is the nature of power? And what is the nature of history? Today, in this series, I don't plan to go through these 10 questions, but today I will start with the first one. Um, And I do that not only because it's the first one, but because I think it colors everything else. If you answer this question, what is first cause, it will then help you to answer all the other questions. Like what is a human being? What is the nature of history? All of these things. So the question today is what is first cause? There was a time uh, when I began teaching that I included this and then I dropped it for about five years and thought, you know, that's most people don't think about first cause. Um, postmodern thinking want nothing to do with first cause. They see this as primitive. We're here, so deal with it. We don't have to know where we came from, what was the first cause. We are here, and that's the way that it is. So, uh, having said that, I've changed my mind. I've included it once again in the list because I think it's really important. So what is first cause? 
First cause is that which was before all things and the cause of what followed. So first causes, as I say, you go back to the very, very, very beginning. What was the very first thing that was? Whatever first cause was, it is uncaused. Nothing caused first cause. It's the first, okay? Aristotle called it the unmoved mover, the one who causes things, but nothing caused him. Uh, Thomas Aquinas, and by the way, if, if you look up, if you Google first cause, um, which I did, uh, Thomas Aquinas usually will come up because he used it to prove the existence of God. I will not do that. Um, my assumption is that God exists and that he is, in fact, first cause. Thomas Aquinas stated that this cause, which is outside our world, is the first cause. It's the one that started everything. He argued that first cause ha must have no beginning. That is, nothing caused it to exist because first cause is eternal. And he argued that that first cause is, in fact, God. Something or someone must have caused the world to exist. The cause is God. The effect is the world. Again, for this series, first cause is not something intended to prove the existence of God. And in fact, again, if you Google it, you'll have people saying, no, Thomas Aquinas was wrong. First cause does not prove the existence of God. I'm not going down that path. For me, the key issue when we look at first cause is, was first cause personal or impersonal. I would argue that the only kind of cause that could be a true first cause is one that has personal agency, that is the capability to direct actions for given purposes. So if we assume, if we accept that the universe had a beginning, what was there before the universe? And what was the cause of which the universe was the effect? Was it something personal or impersonal? The scriptures are quite clear. If you go to the very first verse of the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In that amazing section in Job, chapters 38 to 30, uh, 41, uh, the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Where were you when I laid the, the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand I had, in fact, considered reading a, larger, a longer portion of this passage. It's an amazing passage. I would encourage you to do that when you get home today, chapters 38 through 41. But the universe had a beginning, and God was the cause of that beginning when he created the heavens and the earth. He was, he is, first cause. But who is this God? What do we know of God? In a book that I've mentioned before, Jonathan Wilson uh, wrote a book, uh, God's Good World Reclaiming the Doctrine of Creation. He argues that if God is not Father, Son, and Spirit, then there would, in fact, be no world. There would be no creation. There would be nothing and no one to know that there is nothing. It's like, Mr. Wilson, what does this mean? When we confess that God is Father, Son, and Spirit... We believe that God lives by relationship. The relationship involves these three persons. 
It is a personal relationship. If there were only two persons, uh, life would be an exchange. It would not be an interchange, this ongoing interchange. It would, in fact, simply be two people talking back and forth. But life is not merely reciprocal. Life is far more than that. Consider that if there was, if God was singular, not triune, not a trinity, but simply one, what would life look like? Well, for one thing, God would have to create the world in order to be in relationship. Uh, this is why we are not Muslim, for example, with Allah, who is singular. Um, no, God is Father, Son, and Spirit. They have a relationship. They have life. And out of that flows creation. They choose to create the world. If God needed to create the world to be in relationship, then I would argue in many ways he, would, he might be the first, but he would not be first cause as such, because first cause requires personal agency. Only God as Father, Son, and Spirit, only this God could in fact create the world. The world is not created to give life to God. God is life. Okay? And that is reflected in his creating out of the world. Purely out of his grace, flowing from his own life, his relational life of Father, Son, and Spirit, he creates the world. He's completely free to do so. He doesn't have to. Um, when I was a teenager, I had a very close friend in the Philippines who was a great public speaker, and he would be involved in various contests and win medals. And somebody wrote one for him on the creation. And it started out that God stepped out on the edge of space, and he said, I'm lonely. And then he created the world. No, that's not the way it works. God, as Father, Son, and Spirit, is life. The doctrine of creation as seen in scripture is not primarily, by the way, about us, about the nature of creation, but it's about the God who creates, about he who is first cause. And how does he, how does he create? He speaks, like a person does, he speaks. He doesn't snap his fingers, he doesn't wave a wand, he speaks and brings creation into existence. And this creation is a reflection of God. I would say that a personal God creates a personal creation. We don't have a personal God creating an impersonal creation. In Psalm 147, he determines the number of the stars and calls them each by name. The hymn we sang today, I sing the mighty power of God. The moon shines full at his command and all the stars obey. He calls them out. People will say, well, that's very poetic. That's very nice. No, it speaks of God's agency and his actions. In Isaiah 40, lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name. Again, in Job 38, who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? 
When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, this far you may come and no farther. God is personal, and this is reflected in his creation. Creation reflects the personal nature of God. And I think this becomes clearer when we recognize that a shift occurred several hundred years ago when suddenly people stopped talking about creation and started talking about nature. Um, The transformation of creation to nature. In our conversations, we may in fact use the words interchangeably, nature and creation. But stop and think a minute. If we speak only in terms of nature and not creation, then we turn away from the conviction that the world can be explained and understood only through the account of the world as being created by the creator. It is, in fact, to turn away from the idea that God is first cause, to now seeing the universe as a closed system, nature as a closed system, without reference to anything else but itself. This shift reflected, well, this shift is seen later in the fact that people begin to say that the universe is all that there has ever been and all that ever will be. Carl Sagan is famous for saying that when he spoke of the cosmos. This means it's a closed system. Well, in a closed system, you can't have first cause. But God exists apart from creation, and he is the one who spoke and brought the world into existence. Another reality about this God who created the world, not only is he personal, but he is life, and everything else is death. It's very binary. It's either or, either life or death. As I said, he didn't create for the need. Um, he didn't create needing a relationship. There was already a relationship in the tr- in the Trinity. Um, but as the Father and deals with the Son, and the Son with the Spirit, and the Spirit with the Father, as you have this relationship that is going on, what in fact you have is life, life itself. It is the giving and receiving from the Father to the Son, the Son to the Father, the Father to the Spirit, and so on. Giving and receiving is life. We also know in it, we also know it as love. This divine giving and receiving. In the past, we've used the paradigm of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. It is in creation that we see personal first cause. Seen, I think, most clearly in the creation of Adam and Eve. It is in the fall that we see sin as personal rebellion. It isn't like, oh, Eve broke the rules. It is, in fact, personal rebellion. Instead of giving and receiving, as we see in the triune God, what we have is taking and keeping. It's interesting if you read Genesis chapter 3, when Eve saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable to gaining wisdom, she took and ate it. I think the key to understanding is this taking. Rather than giving and receiving, it is taking and keeping for oneself. And in doing so, she turned away from the one who is life. She turned to death. 
He, when God said the day that you eat of that, you'll die, it isn't like if you break the rules, there are going to be serious consequences. No, it's if you turn away from life, death is the only option available to you. Now our world, the world that we live in, the fallen world, is governed, is ruled, it seems, not by giving and receiving, but by taking and keeping. By God's grace, as citizens of the kingdom, we should be known for giving and receiving, not taking and keeping. So we don't run after the things that the pagans do, because our Heavenly Father knows that we need these things. But we seek first God's kingdom and His righteousness. Even though we live in a fallen world, God is still in charge, okay? He is still first cause. And the scripture is filled with examples that demonstrate this reality. But the one to me that really stands out quite clearly is the story of Gideon. Uh, in the book of Judges, we have this sort of this repeating thing where uh, Israel decides to worship false gods. So that's death. They've turned away from life. And God lets them be taken over by their enemies. And then after a period of time, they're like, well, enough of this. They cry out to God, deliver us. He sends a judge to deliver them. And miraculously, they are delivered. And then for a while, they follow God. And then after a while, they go back to following pagan gods. Well, in one particular case, um, the Midianites had taken over part of Israel. And there was a young man named Gideon. And the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon and said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. That is, I've chosen you to be a judge to deliver your people. And Gideon's like, no, 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 this, <laughs> I, I'm not, this is above my pay grade. I can't do this. I'm a young person. I'm the youngest in my father's family. I'm from a small tribe, the small tribe of Benjamin. Um, yeah, I, I can't do this. And the Lord says, I will be with you. You will strike down all the Midianites together. And Gideon said, if I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. This is usually what people associate with Gideon, putting out the fleece. You may remember the story. But that's to skip ahead a bit. Let's back up. Gideon says to the angel, stay here. I want to offer a sacrifice. I will bring in my offering. And so he prepares an offering, kills uh, a bull and burns it. It's a sacrifice. And then the same night the Lord said to him, take the second bull from your father's herd, tear down your father's altar to Baal, some people say Baal, and cut down the Asherah pole next to it. Then build a proper kind of altar, the Lord your God, on top of this height, using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. And here, there's, this is almost the gospel of Augustus versus the gospel of Jesus. Baal was a male fertility god, Asherah a female fertility god. And the Israelites had bought into the system that if you want your animals to reproduce, if you want to have a good crop, you have to somehow stimulate the fertility gods and they will do this for you. Um, and God says, yeah, no, I'm the true God. I am life. Baal is death. And you need to offer an offering using the Asherah pole, it's made of wood, as the kindling for this fire. 
Gideon did this. And then everyone got upset. And his father defends him. But now we come to the part about the sign. Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have promised, look, I will place a wool, a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you've said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out a, the dew, a bowl full of water. So God had answered. Then Gideon said to God, do not be angry with me. Let me make one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. This time make the fleece dry and the ground covered with dew. That night God did so. Only the fleece was dry. All the ground was covered with dew. And for many people, this story is like, this is how you know what you should do, discerning God's will. And that's not what the story is about, okay? What it is about is rather than you trying to, as you had to with Baal, do something to get Baal to act, God is the one who's acting. He is the personal agent. It began with creation, but it continues even though the world is fallen. One writer put it this way, God did not create a self-sustaining universe that is now left to operate in terms of autonomous laws of nature. The universe is not a giant mechanism like a clock. We'll come back to that toward the end of the sermon, which God created and wound up at the beginning of time. Ours is not a mechanistic world, nor is it an autonomous biological entity growing according to some genetic code of the cosmos. Ours is a world which is actively sustained by God on a full-time basis. Okay? The universe is inescapably personal. I cannot stress that enough because it colors everything when it comes to worldview. We tend to think, like those around us, that you have two parts of creation, the personal and the impersonal. That's simply not what we find in Scripture. So when Israel is sinning against God, the ground itself is wanting to vomit them out. Paul tells us in Romans 8 that creation is groaning, waiting for the redemption of our bodies. A very personal way of looking at creation. This is known, this whole idea is known as cosmic personalism. It affirms that all things have their beginning and meaning in terms of the person and plan of God. It absolutely denies the possibility of autonomy, self-sufficiency, for any aspect of the universe. All creation is subordinate to God. Now, I want to be clear about something. People would say, okay, so Damon, I, I get it. You're giving us a contrast. You have God who is life, Baal who is death. Um, so this is personal, cosmic personalism, God doing stuff, and this is impersonal processes. Okay? I would say no. That's not it at all. Because, in fact, if the world is personal by nature, a reflection of the personal God, you don't have impersonal processes. God is, in fact, the eternally active God. He's not simply first cause, he created the world and then sort of backed off. He is always at work. Some would say, okay, Damon, you're sort of misstating the case, that, that the universe isn't all about processes, that you have this thing called chance. 
that every once in a while there's like a hiccup in the universe. And Damon, you haven't taken that into account. Um, some would say that impersonal process plus impersonal chance equals the real world. And that's not the case either. Cosmic impersonalism is a myth. Okay? We, never, we can never choose between cosmic personalism, God acting as a person, and then the cosmos as being this impersonal realm of processes. It's simply not the case. And yet, I would suggest that many Christians, in their worldview, have taken on the assumption, like their citizens that are surrounding them, that in fact you have the impersonal and you have the personal. And the personal is good for getting you saved, you know, punch your ticket, you get to go to heaven. Um, if you get in serious trouble, you can ask God to do something. But for the most part, the world just sort of, you know, is going along like a well-oiled machine with occasional hiccups. They fail to recognize that God is first cause and God is ongoing cause of reality. Jesus said in John chapter 5, after healing the man by the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath, my father is always at his work to this very day. And I too am working. In a book that Dave mentioned to me and that I got by Stephen Meyer, it's called Return of the God Hypothesis. Three Scientific Discoveries That Reveal the Mind Behind the Universe. Um, he argues that modern science arose in the West, not in China, not in India, not in other civilizations. It arose in the West out of biblical assumptions. And scientists during this scientific revolution used three metaphors to uh, describe their conceptions of nature. Okay. Right away we already see that a shift has occurred from creation to nature. So they're not talking about creation anymore. They're talking about nature. The three metaphors are probably familiar to you. A book, a clock, or a law-governed realm. That is a place where you have laws, like the three laws of thermodynamics. Okay? I hope to deal with this, Lord willing, next week. Okay? But I want to point out here something, that what we find is an increasingly depersonalized view of creation. They've already made the first step because they call it nature and not creation. Book, okay, we, maybe we can go with that. And some have said, you know, we have scripture and then we have the book of nature, that in nature we see God. You know, we see what God has done. Well, okay, first of all, let's start calling it creation again. Okay. But let's, let's allow for some personal thing. A clock is very impersonal or depersonalized, I should probably say. The idea that some God put this clock together, wound it up, and now it's simply winding on its own. And once that step was taken, it, a lot of other things happened, like deism, like, well, God, God's not involved with our lives at all. And then it's another step to say, well, God isn't there at all. And then you have the laws of uh, the principles, the laws of nature, if you wish. And by the way, in this view, miracles can't happen. God cannot act because everything has been set in place. And God as first cause has been removed. And I would call you, each one of us, to re-engage and to acknowledge 
that our worldview, the kingdom, begins with first cause. God is, in fact, the personal God who created the world, and he sustains the world. God is, in fact, true God, uh, the true first cause, the triune God. We see in creation the personal, the relational nature of God, if we would look for it. And yet I suspect we are far too modern for our own good. We see only principles, only laws. We see it in creation. We see it even in a fallen world. And we hear it in redemption. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The gospel is news about a person. A person. That person is Jesus. Jesus is the good news. He is the gospel. Somehow, in a weird way, in the 20th century, actually began in the 19th century, the truth of the gospel was sort of almost made mechanistic and, and principle-driven and depersonalized and it's not so much about a personal God anymore. So you have, for example, the four spiritual laws. You know, follow this thing. Uh, Jacques Ellul, on his, his writing on technique, we have reduced the personal reality of God to a matter of following the steps. You've got to follow these steps and then everything will be cool. First cause is personal and it is God. We should not try to reduce redemption to a process. One might even say an impersonal process. The beginning of a kingdom worldview rests in the reality that God is first cause, that the triune God is personal, relational, the source of life and love. And all things flow from that. I suspect for some it will take some serious thinking uh, to get our minds around this because we are so we're so modern in our thinking. I, I can remember very distinctly one time speaking on this and someone who was raised in this congregation basically shaking head like no. Why does the moon shine full? Well scientists can give us an explanation. And if we go in the scientific thing, we'll forget that it shines full at his command, that God is always at work. Jesus said that. To this very day, my father's at work. So everything that happens is God acting. If we lose sight of that, um, I won't say the battle's lost, but we've gone down the wrong path. And we need to repent and believe the good news. And Jesus is that gospel. He is that good news. The Lord willing, we'll continue looking at this in the weeks to come. Let's pray together. Our Father, we have come together to worship you. We are persons made in your image. You are the creator. You sustain our lives. You make possible every breath that we take. But in many ways, we're far too modern. We have scientific explanations. 
we can explain everything away. What ends up happening is we explain you away until we get into trouble, and then we need help. May we, as citizens of the kingdom, have a kingdom worldview. And may it begin with the reality that you are first cause, Father, Son, Spirit, personal, life-giving, loving, and all things flow from that. Even our sin is personal. Our rebellion against you is personal. We live in a time when people speak of institutional evil as though somehow it's depersonalized. No, you made the world. It reflects who you are. And everything is personal. We are grateful that you sent the Lord Jesus, that he is, in fact, the good news. We confess that we get off track, influenced by those around us. I pray that beginning today and continuing by your grace in the weeks to come, we will begin to recapture, to recover a kingdom worldview. to see the world as you would have us see it. To recognize who you are, who we are, and our place in this world. We have a lot of things to talk about, and by your grace, may you guide our conversations. Thank you for bringing us together today to worship you in spirit and in truth. May your spirit go with us as we leave this place. And as we walk through the world in this coming week, may we begin to think in terms of personal presence that you are with us. There are no accidents. It isn't simply cause and effect apart from you. This is your world, and we are your people. We thank you for your love, an expression of life between Father, Son, and Spirit. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.